Good morning, everyone. If uh, you can turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Over the past uh, few weeks, we have been studying Paul's letter to Titus. And uh, as you're looking that up, let me give you a, a helpful overview there of what we've looked at. Uh, in the first uh, four verses, uh, Paul laid down the grounds for his apostolic instruction, the reasons for why Titus and the church, both then and now, uh, should listen to his words. And also within this is a wonderful picture of the gospel of grace. Uh, while Paul's ministry involved calling people to repent of their sin and, and trust in Christ alone, his atoning work, uh, nonetheless, he recognised that those who were responded uh, were only enabled by the grace and mercy of God. God having sovereignly chosen uh, his elect people in love uh, before time began. Well then in verse 5, uh, his first business uh, was to command Titus to finish appointing elders in all the churches on the island of Crete. Uh, we saw then the importance of eldership. Uh, it was directed and designed by the apostles. Eldership is therefore not something uh, that churches can pick and choose about. Uh, they can't create or fabricate their own ideas. Faithful churches will follow what God has established through the writing of his apostles. Last week, uh, we saw in verses 6 to 8, uh, the integrity of eldership, that any man may uh, be considered eligible for this office if his life is above reproach, uh, if he is uh, a one-woman man, if he has faithful children. And then in verses 7 to 8, we see a list of uh, denials and affirmations of, of what uh, must and must not constitute uh, the character of an elder. Uh, we read, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. But, in the positive, he must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. These are all qualities expected of the man who steps into this most admirable role. And while not explicitly stated, these characteristics do highlight the need for leadership skills. That comes across especially in the way that he, he leads his children. But that takes us into verse 9, which will be our focus for today, which is an explicit statement concerning the man's skill, and yet here too it is firstly uh, a quality. Paul says of the elder that he must hold firm, to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The quality is, is seen in the man's devotion to the word of God, the scriptures, and it is this devotion that enables him to declare the word of God. Here we see that eldership revolves around the word of God, and rightly so. And how, how are shepherds to lead if the shepherds don't know what the chief shepherd commands? Uh, how are the sheep to grow if they're not adequately sustained by real food? 
If the shepherds have not understood the gospel of grace, how are they to lead others to this pure water? Now there's much to cover in this one verse this morning, but it is crucial that we take our time to plumb its depths in order that we see the importance of God's word in the life of Christ's church. So with that, let's commit this time in prayer uh, to the Lord. Dear Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have chosen your people from before time began. You have uh, then enabled the gospel, the good news of Christ to be proclaimed through Christ firstly and secondly through the apostles and then thirdly through the written word that we have preserved for us. We thank you that the scriptures we have are true and trustworthy in everything that is written. We thank you that they are sufficient for for all that we need. Father, we also thank you for the way that you have uh, established the governance of your church, the way that Christ's body is to operate. Father, we thank you, as we will see today, that your word is central to this. And so we pray that uh, as your people gathered here, we would submit humbly to your word. We thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but you have revealed yourself truly through this. Guide our time now, we ask, and uh, illuminate our hearts and minds by the power of your Spirit who indwells all those who belong to Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, the title for today's sermon is The Instruction of Eldership. And uh, our outline to navigate this verse is very simple. The instruction of eldership is, is seen firstly in, in the elder's personal devotion to the word. And secondly, in the elder's public declaration of the word. Devotion and declaration. So firstly, we see the elder's personal devotion to the word. Verse 9 begins... He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. To hold firm means to cling to something or to adhere to something, to show great devotion to someone or to something. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus uses the same word to describe a servant's allegiance. He says in verse 13, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus highlights uh, the reality that a person must choose between service to God and service to the world. He says you can't be devoted, you, you cannot hold firm to both of these at the same time. A choice must be made. There is no fence sitting here. You can't have at the same time one foot in the kingdom of light and and one foot in the kingdom of darkness. It just doesn't work like that. A person's devotion will go one way or the other. We see this with another example. In 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, the Apostle Paul gives final instructions to the believers, saying this in verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help Be devoted to the weak. Be patient with them all. The the same word concerning devotion, that holding fast, is, is translated in Paul's desire that the church is to help the weak among the fellowship. 
The idea is that it is not an optional extra uh, to church life to help those struggling with a lack of spiritual or moral resolve, but it is to be a clear devotion exhibited by all. As with Jesus' comment about the nature of faith here in the life uh, of the church where faith is exhibited, um, there cannot be a partial devotion to helping each other. We'll either be devoted to this task or we will not. Uh, And a healthy church is where this full devotion is expressed consistently. So in this letter to Titus, Paul is laying out the command that the elders must be men who are characterised by their devotion, their clinginess to the word. Now, to be painted as clingy is not normally something a man would hope to be thought of in normal life. It gives the idea that uh, they're needy, uh, that they have no strength in themselves, that they're very dependent people rather than the ones who can be depended upon. But that's exactly the point. Paul is showing that an elder must recognise his absolute dependence upon the word. His lack of strength without the word. His great need for the word. Elders must display a deep personal devotion to the word of God, the scriptures. And a man who does not hold fast to the word is not a man to be considered for eldership. I mean, how will he as a shepherd feed the flock if he's not personally nourished himself? How will he direct the sheep to the only food that uh, will sustain if he has no belief uh, that it is the only source of life? It is a tragedy of epic proportions when men assume the role of shepherd and denigrate the necessity of the word of God in their life and ministry. This cavalier attitude flies in the face of the scriptural witness about its utter sufficiency. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes in verses 16 to 17 that all scripture is breathed out by God. As all scripture is expired from God's mouth. That's where we get the, the term inspiration, that scripture is inspired. It comes from God. So all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. For how much work will the word of God equip a person? Every good work. It is all encompassing. Now, salvation is by grace alone, but God has uh, prepared good works for his saved people to abide in. And he has fully enabled this through his written word. The Apostle Peter, he emphasises this too. In his second letter, he opens by speaking about what the believers have been blessed with by our God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. That's right, he opens with the deity of Jesus Christ. So in 2 Peter 1 verse 3, he says this, His divine power, that is Christ Jesus, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So Christ Jesus, the word made flesh, is sufficient for the believer to live a godly life. 
And here, Peter reiterates what Paul was said in, in Titus 1 verse 1, that, that Paul's ministry was for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. If a person is faithful, uh, they will be fruitful. And Peter brings out what Paul has said, that believers have been given what they need for godliness. And to be godly is to live in devotion to God, to, to live in obedience to him and to his word. Obedience to God's word is, is not the grounds for our salvation, but it is the sign that salvation has occurred. Now, this is not to place a divide between devo- devoting oneself to Christ on the one hand and devoting oneself to scripture on the other hand because it is through the written word that we learn about the living word, Jesus Christ. At the end of 2 Peter 1, Peter speaks of his own experience of hearing God's word on the, the Mount of Transfiguration. And when God spoke saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. But then he draws the believers to a better word. And he says this in 2 Peter 1 from verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter calls the believers to pay attention to this word, this better word, which of course firstly meant the Old Testament, but came to encapsulate the New Testament writings as well. I remember at the end of this letter, in chapter 3 and verse 16, that Peter equates Paul's words with the same authority as the other scriptures. So elders must understand their need for complete reliance upon the word. They must be on guard against any other philosophy that tries to bring wisdom into their lives. The Oxford Dictionary defines philosophy as the study of the fundamental nature of knowledge, reality and existence. Now, you don't need to go into the academic world to encounter this. You just need to turn on your radio and you hear the variety of human opinion espoused daily. In Acts 17, Paul, uh, it records when Paul reached the city of Athens, a city full of idols, a city characterized by talk. Verse 21 says this, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. What do you got for us today? Well, that's today's environment, isn't it? That, that could just as well describe our current age. But as it was in Paul's day, so it is today. And that the elder will be someone not gaining their wisdom from worldly opinion, but from the word of God. Now, When Paul wrote this to Titus, uh, it's clear that the New Testament was not yet complete. I mean, Paul's writing this letter, which became part of the New Testament. And so the word he refers to uh, can be thought of in multiple stages. It refers firstly to the Old Testament, and that's clear from 2 Timothy 3.16. But we also see that the word of God is what was taught by the apostles. A sign of apostleship 
uh, was that they were not taught by men, but they were taught by God. Paul makes this perfectly clear in Galatians 1, where he says in verses 11 to 12, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, This is why in Acts 2, verse 42, we see the early church devoting themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching. The apostles had received their instruction directly from Christ during his earthly ministry, just as Paul had received instruction from the ascended Christ several years later. But as we've seen in in Peter's second letter, the apostles' writings came with the same authority as the Old Testament scriptures. And we see this uh, come out in Paul's letters as well. In Colossians 4 verse 16, uh, Paul says this, And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And then again in, in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 27, he says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. For Paul to be so firm in his conviction that his words must be read out during the worship time uh, alongside the Old Testament scriptures meant that he knew that he spoke as a messenger from Christ himself. Now, why would Paul be so insistent that the elders hold firm to the word that has been taught? Because it is trustworthy. In John uh, chapter 16, Jesus told the disciples in the upper room, he said this in verses 12 to 15. This is Jesus. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit sovereignly guided the apostles and the other apostolic associates who wrote scripture like Mark and Luke. The spirit of truth enabled them to write the word of truth. Because it is God's word, it is truth. For as Jesus says to the Father in John 17, 17, your word is truth. Now Paul himself has already made the case for the trustworthiness of God's word when he reminded Titus in the opening greeting that God never lies. Holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught is the requirement for elders. But really, this should be the desire of all Christians. 1 Peter 2 verse 2, the apostle tells the elect of God, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now, the New American Standard Bible brings out clearer what this spiritual milk is when it reads... Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word. I think of how Jesus responded to the devil when he encountered him in the desert. Matthew 4, we read in verses 3 to 4. And the tempter came and said to him, 
If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the word of God is life for all Christians. And we must devour it. We must depend upon it. And for those who lead the church, how much more so for their own sustenance, but moreover to sustain the flock. So elders must have a personal devotion to the word, but this is not an end in itself. This devotion is so they can make a public declaration of the word. So Paul says of the elder that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Why? So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now before we look specifically at what Paul says here, the first thing we need to recognize in a, in a general sense is that the qualification of being able to teach God's word is what sets elders apart in the church. In, in 1 Timothy 3 verse 2, Paul lists this requirement as well for the Ephesian elders, uh, saying that they must be able to teach. Later in 1 Timothy 5 verse 17, Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honour, especially those who labour in preaching and teaching. Now, this one verse encapsulates the ministry of the elders. They are those designated to rule and to teach. They're the ones in charge of governing and leading the local congregation and they do this primarily through the preaching and the teaching of God's word. Now there will no doubt be other men in the church who are gifted teachers, just as there will no doubt be uh, women in the church who are gifted teachers and tasked uh, with instructing other women and the children. But the elders are ultimately responsible for teaching and ensuring that what is taught through every ministry of the church accords with the scriptures. Now it's very important that we understand the task of eldership in order to differentiate it from the the only other office that's described in the church, and that is the diaconate or the deacons. Now Paul doesn't mention the role of deacons in his letter to Titus, uh, the church in Ephesus was uh, far more established than was the churches in Crete. So you can understand this, this omission here. But in order to help us understand uh, what he does say about elders, it's helpful to say a few things about deacons. And the place that Paul speaks of deacons the most is in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So if you can flick back two books in your Bible to 1 Timothy, and we'll have a look for a moment through what Paul says about deacons. So 1 Timothy 3, uh, after laying the qualifications for eldership in verses 1 to 7, uh, which essentially mirrors what he says in Titus chapter 1, he then goes on to list the qualifications for deacons uh, in verses 8 to 13. And so let's, let's read through that together. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. 
They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So there's several things that we need to note from this passage. First, it is a high calling uh, to be a deacon. Much of what is said about an elder's character is reiterated for the deacons. And uh, as with the qualifications for elders, uh, these two are not desirous characteristics. They are descriptive characteristics. Deacons must exhibit these traits in their lives. Secondly, deacons must have a clear understanding of the mysteries of the faith. Uh, Those things that have been revealed through Christ's arrival and explained by the apostles' teaching and the words of the New Testament. So they must know the truths of the gospel and love the truths of the gospel. Paul says they should have a clear conscience about this. That is, that they should not be equivocating within themselves about the basic truths of the faith. Uh, They should hold them firm. Thirdly, uh, while the deacons are to hold on to the truths of Scripture, there is, however, no requirement that they be able to teach. Now, just hold that thought for a moment because we'll develop that in a moment. Fourth, because there is no requirement for the deacons to be able to teach, and because it's only the elders which the governing responsibility of the church is given, this means that the role of deacon can be filled ably by women as well as men. Ah, didn't we just read in verse 11 that their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded and faithful in all things? And we ask, isn't that referring to deacons' wives uh, and not to women in general? Well, while some English translations have gone this way, uh, such as the ESV here, uh, there are others, such as the New American Standard, uh, which speaks not of wives, but of women. The same Greek word can be translated as wives or women, and so it really comes down to context to define what is meant. And so there are two uh, grammatical reasons for seeing 1 Timothy 3 verse 11 as referring to women and not to deacons' wives. Number one, in the original language of this verse, there's no other word that defines who these women are. It doesn't say the women, and neither does it say their women. It just says women. And so there's nothing to directly connect these women as related to the male deacons. The second point is that the word likewise in verse 11 is also in verse 8. In verse 8, Paul is showing a different group to the elders, that is the deacons. In verse 11, the inclusion of the word likewise shows that Paul is introducing another group uh, that is similar but different to the deacons, the female deacons. So it's not that Paul is establishing two sets of deacons, but merely that he's differing between the men and women who may serve as deacons. Now, there are other reasons for holding to this interpretation, but these, combined with the fact that uh, deacons are not the ones responsible for governance and teaching in the church, 
means that we should embrace the wonderful impact that women can have within this role in the life of the church. So, getting back to to what we just put on hold before regarding deacons not being responsible for teaching, what then are they responsible for? And the answer to that is service. That's what the word deacon means. It means servant. And the best picture of the task of the deacons is seen in Acts chapter 6. And you don't have to turn to that. You can just make a note. But let me just read uh, an account that happened in the, the days of the early church. Acts 6 from verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, it wasn't that the apostles didn't like serving and decided to get some lackeys to do it for them. Uh, No, just consider the character of the men chosen. These were to be well-respected individuals. The point is that God had set apart the apostles for a certain task. They were called to be servants of the word. That's what the word minister means as well, servant. They were to serve by teaching. And they appointed others to serve through practical care. We need to understand that ministries of the word and of deed are vital to the life of the church. The elders uh, follow in the footsteps of the apostles uh, in having prime responsibility of leading and teaching, and of course, prayer. The deacons are tasked with a ministry of mercy, of care. The deacons do not share the authority of the elders. They sit rightly under the leadership of the elders. But all in the church are called to serve, whether the elders or deacons, in the tasks that God has assigned to them. Mark Deaver is a well-known Baptist pastor who's written much helpful material in the last 20 years on church governance. And he summarizes the position of the deacon this way. He says this, The deacons care for physical needs to the end of uniting the body under the ministers of the word. A deacon's care for physical needs to the end of uniting the body under the ministers of the word. That's quite helpful. (coughs) Alright, so hopefully you can see clearly now the distinction of biblical governance in the church. And with that we come back to Titus chapter 1 and we're going to look more closely at the requirement that sets the eldership apart. So of an elder... Verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Why? So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So here is the purpose for the elder's personal devotion to the word, so that he can make a public declaration of the word. And we can see straight away that there are two elements to the elder's declaration. One in a positive sense, one in a negative sense. First then, this declaration of the word involves commending truth. 
Paul says, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. So here's the positive sense. The elder needs to have a deep commitment to the word so that he can build others up in its glorious truths. And this this reflects the ministry of the Apostle Paul that he outlined in in verses 1 and 2, where he said um, that his ministry uh, was for the sake of the faith of God's elect, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. So he was on about evangelism and proclaiming the gospel of grace. But then he was on about edifying the believers, growing them in the truths uh, of the scriptures and, and calling them to the fruit that they are to produce in their lives. And then encouraging them, making them fearless with the hope or the promise of eternal life. Now actually the ESV misses a little emphasis in, in simply stating uh, that the elders are to give instruction because the Greek word underneath is, is stronger than simply give instruction. It means to urge and to encourage and to exhort. And what are elders uh, meant to encourage people in? Sound doctrine. The word sound is hygiano. Uh, it's where we derive the term hygiene. From. So sound here means healthy or clean, hygienic uh, teaching. And that's what doctrine simply means, teaching. So the elders are meant to be able to help others understand healthy teaching. Now, in many churches today, there is almost an allergic reaction, a visceral reaction when the term doctrine is mentioned. Uh, they say doctrine divides, and so we should just put that aside and, and get on with loving and serving people. But actions always stem from understanding. If we believe something, that affects our behaviour. And so if we have unhealthy beliefs, it's going to express itself in unhealthy behaviour. In 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul exhorted Timothy to keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Belief and behaviour cannot be separated Doctrine is important. The late great theologian R.C. Sproul once sarcastically quipped, No, doctrine's not important. Doctrine divides. That's why God gave us all we needed to know on one sheet of paper rather than a thick book. Doctrine is important. Now, it's true. Doctrine does divide. Nothing divides quite like the truth. Hebrews 4 verse 12 For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In 2 Corinthians 2, from verse 14, Paul says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And who is sufficient for these things? The truth of God's word is always effective. Even if this effectiveness is seen in the result of hardened hearts. Doctrine does divide. But remember what Jesus said. The truth will set a man free. And of course, only by the gracious work of God can a sinner respond to this truth. Now, that doesn't mean that elders are to be set out 
are to set out to be divisive as a pastor. I'm not to sit down at the start of the week and think to myself, who can I tick off with this next sermon? No, of course not. In Ephesians 4, Paul raises the importance of speaking the truth in love. Truth applied with a sledgehammer is not going to be received very well. But love without truth, well, that's just mush. The necessity of truth and love is certainly borne out through the previous requirements for eldership that Paul's listed in Titus 1. The the irreproachable character of one who is a lover of good and upright informs the manner in which the truth is meant to be taught. One thing that elders are to encourage the congregation with in particular is to trust in the sufficiency of God's word. In the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, believers have received all things pertaining to life and godliness. And in the word made scripture, believers have what is necessary to be equipped for every good work. Through Christ and the scriptures, believers have a sufficient supply for this life. And it's imperative that the elders are men who seek to instill this in those who have been entrusted into their care. Because more and more, the methodology of this world seeks to creep into the church, telling Christians that we need something more. The Bible is good, but we need something more. All this undermines the sufficiency that we have been given. Just to give you one example. One Christian psychologist wrote about challenging a friend who believed in the sufficiency of Scripture. And he challenged him as to how he would counsel a young girl with anorexia. And the psychologist said this. He said, It's difficult to come up with a biblical answer to a question that the Bible never seems to consider. And my friend, therefore, changed the question from the one I, as well as the girl's parents, was asking, that in his mind we should have been asking. And the friend told him, Two passages in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 6, uh, tell us that we are the temple of God. One passage indicates that our bodies are themselves the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in 1 Corinthians 6. And then the, the psychologist comments, My friend turned to those verses and explained that anorexia can be understood as rebellion against our responsibility to care for the Spirit's temple. But then he said, this, this so-called biblical counselling will focus on developing in the anorexic a respect for her body and exhorting her to treat her body accordingly. At best, the results of such counselling will be external conformity. The counsellee will not be freed by truth to enter more deeply into loving relationship with God or others. And he laments finally with these words. When we limit the questions we are allowed to ask to those that the Bible specifically answers, the result will often be a non-thinking and simplistic understanding of life and its problems. Now the attitude exhibited by this Christian psychologist is exactly the thing that Christians should be prepared to withstand and exactly the reason why elders need to be diligent and clear in affirming the sufficiency of Scripture. And not merely its sufficiency, but its inspiration, its inerrancy, its authority. Elders are to be proficient in their knowledge and their ability to teach the Word. And you know what? That is sufficient. To lead on from this, I've, I've had it said to me, oh, that's... That's a tough job being a preacher, having to come up with something new every week. And you know, as I was um, involved in ministry during my teens and my early 20s, I, I would have agreed with such a comment. I, 
I coordinated our youth service for years and I was in countless planning meetings where we would try and figure out themes for each service. But then I went to Bible college and all of that changed because I learned about the Bible. I learned about its authority. I learned about its sufficiency. I learned about the necessity of expository preaching because an inerrant word demands expository preaching. I learned that as a preacher, I have nothing to say but the word of God. The pulpit is not a soapbox. The pulpit is not a place for personal opinion. The pulpit is not a place for the meeting of the felt needs of the congregation. The pulpit is not a place for espousing the latest trends in psychology or sociology. No, the pulpit is where God's word is declared. In the early 1980s, one evangelical scholar wrote this, He said, it's no secret that Christ's church is not at all in good health in many places of the world. She has been languishing because she has been fed, as the current line has it, with junk food. All kinds of artificial preservatives and all sorts of unnatural substitutes have been served up to her. As a result, theological and biblical malnutrition has afflicted the very generation... And get this irony here, has afflicted the very generation that has taken such giant steps to make sure its physical health is not damaged by using foods or products that are carcinogenic or otherwise harmful to their physical bodies. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Read the word, teach the word, exhort the word. And so eldership involves the positive aspect of commending truth. But there is also the negative side, the flip side. For if there is truth to be told, there is untruth to be rebuked. And so eldership also involves countering falsehood. It's what Paul says, the elder must also be able to rebuke those who contradict the word. In the verses that immediately follow, Paul highlights that this was indeed a necessary challenge that Titus faced. Why would elders need a counter falsehood? Well, verses 10 to 11, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Excuse me. (coughs) Now we're going to look at these verses in more detail next time we gather together, but suffice it to say, there was a great problem and it had to be dealt with. There needed to be leaders, elders appointed, who were not only above reproach in their character, but aptly skilled in teaching the truth and exposing falsehood. Now, some may think, is this really necessary? Surely, there can't be that much falsehood around the place. And even if there is some falsehood, surely we don't need to speak to it, for that would be unloving. But this is to miss the clear command, the clear requirement established for eldership. There will be false teachers who need to be silenced for the good of the church. Listen to the warning that Paul gave to the Ephesian elders earlier in in Acts chapter 20. 
He said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. But it's not just Paul who warned us of this. Peter made this clear in 2 Peter 2, where he said, But false teachers arise also among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing up them upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. It is not unloving to confront false teaching. It is unloving to let it remain and have its ungodly way in the life of the church. The elder who lets falsehood prevail is like the shepherd that is not fussed if he welcomes wolves into the pen along with the sheep. But again, as elders are to be above reproach, there is a manner of rebuking falsehood in which it is to be done. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, uh, speaking of the Lord's servant, that he may correct his opponents with gentleness. Bear in mind the way Jesus also corrected his opponents. He did not hold back in certain moments, and yet he did not sin either. But make no mistake, false teaching abounds. And there are wolves dressed not only in sheep's clothing, but in the garbs of shepherds too. It is the responsibility of the eldership to protect the flock, to warn them when wolves are seen skulking around the campsite, and to lead them into healthy teaching. To be an elder, one must have a personal devotion to the word and must be able to proclaim the word publicly. And this involves commending the truth as well as countering falsehood. Now we've uh, covered a lot this morning and I hope that these last three weeks of looking intensely at the office of eldership has been helpful in in understanding the importance of this role in the life of the church. But in wrapping up, let me just finish with a heaping of humility for the eldership here at Mafra and for those men who may be stirred in following years to desire serving in this wonderful and difficult task. In James chapter 3, verse 1, we're told, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Having responsibility for implementing sound doctrine to the life of the church is a very sobering thought. And so it should be. But it's not merely what the elder teaches, but who the elder is as a person. Moses, lost out on entering the promised land because despite his many years of faithful service, he disobeyed God's command at Meribah, hitting the rock to bring out water instead of simply speaking to it as God had told him. And Paul too, he speaks of his own desire not to miss out on the blessings of God when he says in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 27, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. May God guide and strengthen us to remain faithful to him in word and indeed. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you so much for the teaching that we have seen in the letter to Titus. We thank you that it is your word and that we can trust that it's true. We pray that you would help us to dwell on these things and not merely dwell on them, but to continue to implement and hold to them. As we seek to align ourselves continually with the scriptures, individually as Christians and also corporately as a church, may you glorify yourself through us. We thank you for the things that we have seen about the office of eldership. We pray for our elders who are currently serving, that you would uh, give us all diligence in this task. You would help us understand the gravity of that. And you would help us understand as well that it is by your grace that we serve. And it is to your glory and to the chief shepherd whom we are accountable to. Father, as a church as a whole, we pray that you would help us to um, to follow through with the, uh, the importance of, of leadership, that we would understand its biblical imperatives. And that as a church, we would work together in the task that we've all been assigned. The gospel may go out clearly, graciously and truly to our community and beyond. For your glory and for your name's sake, we pray. Amen.